Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. All right, let's read this together. The verses will be up on the screen if you, if you don't have a Bible. Um, the, let me just also say the context here. The last thing we left off, Jesus uh, was crossing the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. Um, and they got into a windstorm. Disciples freaked out. Jesus was taking a nap. He calmed the storm. And I just love the beginning of chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Then they came to the other side of the sea, which is what we talked about last week. I just have to say this, this is like a callback to last week, because that's we talked about last week that that's really the thing that storms test in us. Jesus, before the storm, said, let's go to the other side. And in the middle of the storm, the disciples are going, I don't think we're getting there, Jesus. We're going to perish. But I just want to encourage you. Maybe you're in, in a storm of life right now. And Jesus has said some things about where you're going to be, but it's hard to see the possibility of getting there because of circumstances. And I just want to show you Mark 5.1 again. Then they came to the other side of the sea. That's just a sermon in and of itself that Jesus will get you where he promises to take you. Amen? All right. Done with that. Let's move on to the new sermon, okay? It says, then they came to the other side of the sea, it tells us, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broke in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar off, he ran and worshipped him, fell at his feet. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also, he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now, this gets really wild here in a second. Check this out, if it wasn't already a little wild. Verse 11, now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once, Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. They were about 2,000. It's a lot of bacon. It says, And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So the demons are permitted to go into the swine. They run violently down the steep place into the sea. Verse 14, So those who fed the swine fled. They, then it says, And they told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed. I love that. And had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. 
and they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him, Jesus, to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them, this is beautiful, tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. This is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. Jesus, thank you for this passage today. You've brought us here. We've got your word before us. And you've called us here to an opportunity to receive something fresh from you, to hear from you, to be changed by you, to come deeper in our understanding of who you are and what you're like. And, and what a great display of that here in this story. Um, we can see ourselves in the story in some ways. And we ask today, Jesus, that you would, if anything, you'd help us see that. See how relevant you are in this story to our lives today. The work that you continue to do. Um, and so... With that really being our topic, it's also our prayer that, Jesus, you would work here in our midst this morning. You would work through the power of your word as you, as you promise in your word that your word won't return void, but it'll accomplish the work that it's set out to do. So, Holy Spirit, just illuminate our understanding to your word today. Speak to us specifically. God, each week I come up with studied prep and a sermon, but really we're here because we need you, the living God, to work and to speak to us. And so um, I pray that you would help me be faithful to preach and yet also available to your spirit for us to be able to hear from you. We ask that you would speak to us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Have your seat. What a terrifying scene that the disciples stumble upon with Jesus as they dock their boat on shore. And I want to emphasize that word again, terrifying. You know, we read it here in the daylight on a beautiful Sunday morning, um, Mark chapter 5, and it's kind of this historic past thing. But if you're the disciples in this story, in this moment, you are as scared as you were a few moments ago in the middle of a thunderstorm. This is kind of like... By the way, this is kind of how things often go. Crazy things happening, disciples freaking out, Jesus overruling what's scary, and then the disciples fearing Jesus as he calms not just the storms and the seas, but he calms the chaos here of hell. A, a, a truly terrifying event. I mean, this could be a horror movie, genuinely. I don't know how, what lens you read it with, but if I could set a little bit more context here in Mark 5, what we just saw, the setting is the middle of the night. You're pulling your boat up on shore in the middle of the night, and as you're getting close to the shore, you begin to hear these terrifying demonic screams that are coming from, this, is, this helps, a graveyard? Who doesn't want to just dock their boat at the graveyard in the middle of the night to encounter a demoniac? That sounds like a Friday, you know? Um, and then this, this being emerges, and he's just, I genuinely mean this, He's deformed, he's unrecognizable from head to toe. He's bleeding everywhere because he's been cutting himself. I mean, this is a 
vivid display of darkness before our eyes that we see Jesus showing up in the midst of. Now, there's a lot more to this story, though, than a potential horror flick. There's the power of Jesus displayed in the story. There's a really beautiful display of Jesus in the midst of what's so ugly here. And here's what we want to focus on. You know, we, we talk about this every week. It's, a, it's, it's the way of Jesus that we're looking at. And so in this passage, we're going to talk about the way Jesus worked here in Mark chapter 5. The way Jesus worked. The focus of this story is not the works of a demon, and it's not the works of a demoniac. The focus of this story is the works of Jesus. How even in the face of such darkness and evil and depravity and brokenness, the work of Jesus is strong and mighty and overcomes what's overcoming this man. Um, the works of Jesus are one of the main vessels through which Jesus displays who he really is as the Son of God all throughout the Scriptures. That's why I love the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is like, yeah, there's a lot about his words, but look at what Jesus does. Just look at his works. Look what he can do. In fact, this is what made his teaching that much greater. It wasn't just the words that he spoke, but it was the works offstage that gave greater weight to what he was saying as the Son of God. This is Mark 6 in the next chapter. We'll get here in a couple of months. Uh, in Mark 6, it says that when the Sabbath come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, and they said, where did this man get these things? He's bringing such powerful teaching. And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands. So Jesus wasn't just a teacher with knowledge. Any fool can have knowledge. Jesus was the display of the wisdom of God, which is knowledge uh, displayed. James says, if anyone has wisdom, let him show, let him show if he's a fool or not by the way that he lives. You know, wisdom is not how much insight you have. Look how smart I am. Wisdom is how you skillfully live in light of what's true and what's right. And Jesus is just displaying wisdom. Notice this again, with the mighty works that are performed with his hands. This is what wowed and awed people. And I, and I just want to say this, like one more word about this. I feel like in our generation too, um, as decades and decades go on, what you find is more and more in the church, I think this is a really healthy thing in the American church, for so long we have been obsessed with preachers and their words, haven't we? He's got great words. You should go to that church. Why? Words, right? It's all about the words. And what we found in our culture, when we idolize men and put them up on that pulpit, what we find is that when their works don't match their words, everything tends to fall apart when we're built around just gifts and not character. And it's been kind of a cool trend that I'm seeing in the church where the real question today is it shouldn't just be how skilled is that person? How gifted is that person? But here's the real question. What are they like off the stage? What are they like when, when they're, they're not in the spotlight? But how do they treat their family? How do they treat their wife? How do they treat their friends? This is so important. Jesus was not just a man of great words. He was a man of great works, but not like any normal person works. He didn't just do great things, do good things, you know, like, you know, feeding the hungry and helping the poor and, and uh, you know, clothing the naked and healing the sick. He certainly did that. But he did, listen, look at this again, mighty works. In fact, here's what Jesus says in John 9 about his works. He says, I must work the works, I love this sentence, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one 
can work. And as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So, so Jesus says that he's here on earth, I love this, to do the works of God. He has to work the works of God. This is what was so special about Jesus. Um, and Mark is, is a great lens for us to see that Jesus wasn't just some old teacher, some ancient good man, that Jesus was the God-man who did God things. Jesus never claimed to be God. He did a lot. First of all, he did, okay, and he was crucified for it. But also, he did God things. He did works that only God does, like forgive sin and raise the dead and cast out demons and calm storms. <laughs> the works of Jesus, the, the very works of God, that's what we have here in Mark chapter 5. We have the works of God through Jesus, the works of God. Now, whenever you're dealing with the work of Jesus or the work of God, you're dealing with a paradox. The Bible is filled with paradoxes, two parallel truths that we would love to see compromised to make more sense of one rather than the other. You know what I'm saying? Like God's sovereignty and human responsibility. That's a great paradox. That Jesus was full of truth and grace. That God is both just and merciful. There's paradoxes in Scripture, these beautiful paradoxes. One of them has to do in Scripture with the, the works of God. And this is the paradox you see in Scripture with God's works, that there is the, the mystery to God's works in the Bible, you know, because God works in mysterious ways, right? That's what everyone says. The verse isn't exactly in the Bible, but there's the mystery, which is like God's works can't really be known. I mean, they're God's works. And then there's the other side of that, which is the knowability of God's works. That, that God's works, as mysterious as they are, as grand as God is, there is the opportunity to know who God is and how he works. Let me kind of give you some verses on this. So for, let's look at the mystery verses. Ecclesiastes 11.5, Solomon, um, we study the book of Ecclesiastes. He's, he's coming at this from the perspective of the skeptic, life under the sun. Let's remove God for a second. Let's take off the rose-colored glasses that there's hope and there's heaven and there's God. He removes those glasses and he begins to do a thought experiment in the book of Ecclesiastes. And he says, as you do not know what is the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, this is Hebrew poetry, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. So he's speaking again to that mystery of God. Here's Acts 15, says the same kind of idea. Known to God, look at this, from eternity are all his works. You know, what this should help us do is, is not be tempted to box God in, right? You can't box in the work of God, can you? And that's what we tend to do, especially as religious people. Like, how do I box that in and repackage it and resell it? Here's the work of God, right? Now. If you call now for $5.99, you know, you get the work of God. And, and, and the, the scriptures all throughout will remind us that there's a mysterious, um, eternal component to the works of God that we could never fully wrap our mind around. And we, we've all seen this. Haven't you seen this? Where you're like, I didn't expect God to work that out. I don't know. Only, you ever said this? Only God could work out that out the way it did. That was God. It's the mysterious work of God. Yet, as I said, the other side of this is the knowability of God's works. They're mysterious, but they're at the same time, as a paradox, they're within reach. Look at Psalm 66. It says, come and see the works of God. He is awesome in his doing towards the sons of men. You see this invitation? 
God works in mysterious ways, but come check it out, right? Come get into the mystery. Come take a look. Come see how God works. Come see what he's done. I, I love this next scripture. Romans 8.28 says, And we know, I love this, that all things work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Have you, by the way, have you faced the paradox in this one? Where you're just like, this is a mystery. But there's a promise here that I can know that God is going to work this out. So you see the paradox. You guys with me? You following me? A paradox. I know it's a little early to think about things like paradoxes, but mystery and knowability. I think a lot of times what we can fail to do is dive into the invitation of Psalm 66 that says, come see the works of God. God's works, as mysterious as they are, they are knowable, and you and I are invited in to become, listen, familiar with them. Familiar with them. I, the most relevant illustration I think of right now, how we can think of God's works, is um, a project that's being done at my house right now um, I would say that me and Roberto are building this playhouse in the backyard, but that's just a lie, okay? Roberto is an engineer, and I'm there. <laughs> if he needs a th anything, all right? Um, so, you know, Brittany's out of town this weekend, so this is us with, with Judah. Brittany's out of town with the girls. They're up on a little vacation with all the ladies, and so pray for us. It's all guys at the house. Um, all all male dogs, too. It's just, it's a disaster. Notice Judah's drinking Mountain Dew. Sorry, Brittany. I love you. Please forgive me, okay? Um, from Taco Bell. It's been a great weekend. Um, <laughs> notice the smile on his face. I can eat whatever I want. Mom's gone. All right. We're having salad for lunch, okay? Um, so we got a, a big stack of lumber there from Lowe's. This is the thing that, that's being assembled right now in, in, in my yard. It's going to be a little homeschool slash playhouse thing for the kids to go outside and and uh, have their own house, you know, go out there. <laughs> this is our house, no. Um, so uh, this is not the first time uh, Roberto and I have, you know, pursued some constructive endeavor at our house, and when I say we, I mean he. Um, but uh, most recently, as Roberto was building this thing, you know, I've developed some basic level of skill with carpentry and, and construction, but nothing remotely impressive. Uh, just, you know, YouTube helps you. And so... As the way that I would approach this is one thing. The way that Roberto as a, you know, as, has a master's degree in engineering would approach this, I came to the project the other day, and this is what he had on the deck. I, this is so foreign to me that I said to him, what kind of math is this? I might have even said, like, what kind of algebra is this? And he's like, this is trigonometry, okay? I'm like, I know, all right? I was asking what kind of trigonometry, okay? Um, the trig one or two, duh. And so... The way that Birdo is going about doing the work here is a bit of a mystery to me. I mean, the way that I would do it versus the way he would do it, it's calculated. Uh, it's trigonometric, all right? It's very complex. Now, I think sometimes this is how we can imagine and limit the work of God. We're just like, it's too big, it's too grand, it's too far outside of my understanding. It's, it's nothing but a mystery that's way over my head. So again, a, a, a long point to make, and a, and a longer illustration to make the point that God invites us to come see and to come know how he works, to know him intimately. Now, can I say this? Maybe here's, here's another question. Why would we? Why would or why should you or I or us as a community 
become familiar with the works of Jesus. Why would we want that? And I would say two things. Number one, because we are everything through the work of Jesus. We are everything that we are as a church, as new creations in Christ. Whatever you are, can I tell you, whether you know this or not, you are everything because of the work of Jesus. Whether you've recognized his work, whether you've named him on your life or not, you are everything and anything because of the work of Jesus. And it's hard even because the sermon's titled like the way Jesus worked, but we got to make that present tense. The way Jesus continues to work leads to anything and everything that we are. The other way to say this is another reason why we'd want to know the work of Jesus is because we are nothing without the work of Jesus. We're everything through the work of Jesus, not our own efforts, not our own works. No, nobody's going to get to heaven and be able to say, yes, I did it. I've worked hard enough to make it here. But we're also nothing without the work of Jesus. This was such a central part of our heart posture when we started Solus. Be- this desire to say we're nothing, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Lord, so like we're nothing without your work. And especially today, it's so tempting to not believe this because of how many tricks and tips there are for getting a crowd, starting a church, making it big, do all this stuff, you know, like here's what you do. Here's the smoke machine you buy, you know, kind of a thing, right? It's like, here's how you do it. Church in a box. And so this is central, I think, to our heartbeat. I've noticed how much, how hard it is to stay here, though. And it, it requires over time, four years in now, for us to really be disciplined and go, wait a minute, let's be careful. Now that we're here and it's a church, we're still nothing without the work of Jesus. And, and can I say the same is true for your life and my life? You know, when you first came to Jesus, when you were really giving your life to him, there, maybe that was so much more real. I'm nothing without the work of Jesus. What about right now? Do you feel the same way? I'm nothing without the work of Jesus. I need Jesus in my life. I need him to work. I'm as desperate for his work today as I was four years ago, as I was two years ago, as I was yesterday. That's, that's the goal. That's the desire. Now, here in Mark 5, Mark chapter 5, is like the chapter about the work of Jesus. Um, in Catholic tradition, Mark chapter 5 is called the St. Jude chapter. And the reason is because in the Catholic tradition, St. Jude is the patron saint of hopeless causes. You may have heard of St. Jude's what? Children's Hospital. Situations that seem hopeless. Situations, listen, you ever felt this way? You ever, you ever looked at a situation and said, this is outside of God's work? This is a hopeless cause. This marriage is a hopeless cause. My faith is a hopeless cause. This person is a hopeless cause. This endeavor is a hopeless cause. You ever looked at that? You've, you've diagnosed something as being outside of the possibility of God's work. Well, Mark chapter 5 is a great passage for people like you and me who can find ourselves in that place. In Mark 5, you have three hopeless causes. You have, later on in the chapter, you have two, two individuals, a little girl and a woman. One's 12 years old, and she's hopelessly dead. And another is a woman who's had the same problem for 12 years, a flow of blood, that has become a hopeless cause, and nobody can heal in her. And then you have what we read in Mark 5, 1 through 20, You have the hopeless cause of this demonically possessed and oppressed man. 
This is the chapter of hopeless causes. And I've learned this, and I'm wanting to grow in, in knowing this and believing this and expecting this more from God, that God specializes in hopeless causes. God loves hopeless situations. Hopeless situations are there for us to realize we can't do it, we can't produce it, but he can and he does, and we give him the glory. Hopeless causes are great setups for the work of Jesus. It's not that it always works out exactly the way we want him to. That's important, right? This is how I want you to work, God. That goes back to the mystery thing, doesn't it? But here's the thing you can know, that Jesus is never intimidated by a hopeless cause, and his work is always mightier, especially when it's a work like the one we studied here in Mark 5, the work of a man in the country of the Gadarenes. In this chapter, what an example of this. There's a couple of things that we see in this chapter that give us a lens into the work of Jesus. Uh, write a couple of these things down. The first thing we saw in this chapter we see is the condition. The condition of the situation, the condition, I want to say more specifically, of this individual, which shows us what Jesus works with. What Jesus, this is what he's working with here in Mark 5. First thing we see is the condition that Jesus is working with. And we saw that condition on full display. I'll read it again. Here's what Jesus is working with. They come out of the boat, and there meets him a man of the tombs. He has an unclean spirit. He had his dwelling place among the tombs. People were trying to bind this guy, and they couldn't, not even with chains. This is what he's working with here. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him. The shackles were broken in pieces. Nobody could tame this guy. And it says, and always night and day, he was in the, the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. So this is the backdrop. This is the context of where Jesus is going to step in and do a mighty work. Here's the condition. What's Jesus working with? What, what's the nature and the condition of this man? And I'll go through. These are all the different things that are in this passage. The first thing that we saw about this man, here's his condition. He's spiritually unclean. His spiritual condition is the worst kind of condition that you can find yourselves in, uh, that we can find, any, any of us can find ourselves in, which is the condition of sinfulness, and it's the state of being unclean. Now, especially in that culture, there were certain laws that would, uh, were given to keep you clean and prevent you from being unclean. And this man, by every metric, was living an unclean life. Spiritually speaking, to be, I mean, just, just think about the imagery. Um, think about the feeling of shame that could come across with feeling like you're dirty, you're unclean. And, and that, that's what the condition of this guy was. He, first of all, he had an unclean spirit. And an unclean spirit, a demonic spirit. We learn many. Uh, additionally, he had his dwelling among dead things. He lived in the tombs. That was his, his home was the graveyard, which was an unclean territory. There were ceremonial rituals you had to go through if you were even within close proximity to this kind of environment. So he was unclean in terms of his environment. He was also unclean because he was in close proximity to bacon. We saw those swine. A lot of wasted bacon off that cliff, right? We know that's an unclean animal in Israel's history and in Israel's culture. And lastly, he's unclean because he's in Gentile territory. This, this is the condition of this man. He's unclean. So it's not just his spiritual condition. We see that he's, his mental condition is that which is unstable. This guy is mentally unstable. 
He's unwell. He's unhealthy. It's, it's, you know, what, what you have here with this individual, let me say this, is a full display of, of, the, of mental illness to its worst degree. They were trying to tame him and control him. He's out. This is an individual. You notice his transformation. It says that he's in his right mind. And we know that prior to this, his condition is being out of his mind. He's mentally unstable. He's socially unacceptable. Because of his condition, because he's out of his mind, and societally, they tried to fix him. Did you see that? They were trying to, like, chain him up. Like, maybe he can just be in these chains and function that way, like King Kong or something. Like, just this wild creature in that culture. But because of his condition and because of how unclean he was, he was an outcast. He was unacceptable. He was also, also notice this, practically untreatable. There was no solution within reach. The chains didn't work because somehow through, this is pretty interesting, some superhuman demonic power, he was able to break the shackles and chains that they put around him. He's emotionally undone. The, the idea there is, He's, it tells us that he's crying out. His emotional state, his, his mental state, his social relationships, his spiritual state. And then, of course, he's, because of all these factors, he's physically not well. He's not even clothed, is what Luke tells us. He's in this cave, unclothed, cutting himself with stones. Which is not a new thing. We see that. that this, is, this is something that's, let me say this too, it's not an old thing. Something that Tragically, I had to deal with a lot as a youth pastor, students that had no other way out of their situation except through self-destruction. Maybe if I can feel a little bit here, it's a release. It's, it's, it's a, medically, it's even a, a mental, neurological um, solution to them. This guy, let me say what he represents, his condition. This is what, what we said earlier. We talked about his condition, what Jesus is working with. This guy represents, we could say this, the epitome of human fallenness and brokenness. That's what this guy represents. I mean, you think about the contrast between this individual and the first man and woman created in the image of God and how far humanity has become broken and fallen. And, and even the language to describe this guy, like this is less of a human, more of a beast. Don't you see that? He's a creature. He's got these animals, he, and he's, it's almost like human deformity in terms of, of being made in the image of God. This is a picture of as fallen and as broken as an individual can be. Luke chapter 8 tells us that he's been like this for a long time. Treated as sort of like a creature, like an animal. The next thing we saw in this context, so that was the condition. The next thing we see is the conflict. The, the, con, the condition is what Jesus is working with. But, but then we see, in, in a greater view, we see the conflict that's overarching the story, which is what Jesus works against. This is really interesting. It says, when Jesus saw him from afar, the man comes and he worshipped him. But this is not like, you know, singing before the throne I come kind of a worship. This is... Uh, a sense of being prostrate before him in a worshipful posture, not necessarily with a worshipful heart. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, now notice this, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he said to him, come out of the man, unclean spirit. Now what, what do we have in this passage? What you have here is you have the greater context, which is a conflict, a spiritual conflict. Uh, this man, 
had, a, we could say this, that there were a lot of different factors that contributed to what his condition was. But underlying all of it was a demonic force. It was a demonic war. It, it was a spiritual conflict, which is so, such an interesting thing to see here. Um, this, these spiritual beings that are using this individual as a, as a host. He is possessed in every extent of that word. To possess something means to own something. A lot of times when we think of demon possession, we think of having a demon. But biblical demon possession is the demon has you. And you're possessed under his influence, under his sway. Paul talks about the prince of, you're, you're under the sway of the evil one, the God of this age. And that's where this man is at. That's what's really going on behind the, behind the scenes. That's the real situation here. Such a great reminder, too, that um, most of the time we fail to see the real spiritual battle going on in our situation. It can be very easy to, to look at our situations and, and just immediately go to natural causes and natural solutions. Here's the 10 steps to fix the broken thing, right? Put chains on him. That'll do it. What a great illustration, isn't it? Of how we, we go about, let's, here's how we'll fix this. You, you can't fix a spiritual problem with natural resources. This is a spiritual issue. And there's no chaining this up. And you know, it's interesting. Did you know that the, the, in etymology, the, word, the, the root of the word religion is to bind, is what it means. To bind. That's one of the understandings of the word. Religion can be used to bind for a lot of good things, to bind us in what's true. But there's a kind of legalism and man-solution religion where we hijack the thing and we kind of remove Christ and the gospel and prayer and the spirit and we just make it about works and religion and attending and doing this thing and that and the other. And it just becomes another form of slavery, isn't it? And it's like, well, I'm doing all the religious things, so shouldn't I have freedom? But you, you've just traded a secular solution for a religious natural solution. The solution is still going to be the same thing. It's going to have to be something spiritual. This is a spiritual issue. A spiritual issue. Now, when I start to say spiritual issue, if this is your first time in church, welcome back. We're talking about demons today. Hi. How's it going? It's kind of offensive and difficult language for us to think about, um, especially in our Western culture. We're so sophisticated and materialistic, and everything has a natural occurrence, a natural solution. And by the way, I'm not saying that every mental illness has some sort of demonic backing to it. I do believe we don't consider the spiritual component enough in most of our situations. Um, I'll just kind of say that. Here's what Ephesians, I'll let the Bible speak. Here's what Ephesians 6.12 says. It says, we don't wrestle. The wrestle at the end of the day is not against your spouse, right? It's not against the storm. It's not against the conflict. It's not against that person. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Behind it all, his principalities, against powers, against the rules of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So the, the scriptures, we tend to, so let me say this, the scriptures use very clear language. It's, it's very vivid in the Bible that there is a spiritual dimension to life with real intelligent spiritual beings. Good supreme beings that are under the authority of God called angels and fallen evil beings, spiritual beings, that are under the authority of Satan, a fallen angel uh, with which a whole group of angels rebelled. Um, th this is the reality. Now, this is hard for us sometimes to grasp, especially because there's some people in the church that have like over, like everything's the devil. So you're kind of like, you know, okay, chill out. That's not the devil. You just need to take a nap, all right? <laughs> like, just eat a Snickers and everything will be fine, you know? 
we see. And by the way, I want to recommend to you if you haven't b read this before. One of the best resources on this, before you even get into like big theology stuff, is C.S. Lewis's book, The Screw Tape Letters, which is such a, a very insightful, a really engage. If you're like, if you have trouble reading, reading. Uh, I was gonna say books, but just reading. You know. Um, first of all, if you have trouble reading, I have a great opportunity for you to practice. All right. It's called <laughs> scripture readings, but. Um, it's a great book that really engages the mind and the imagination to understand the reality of the spiritual realm in everyday life and little things. Not just, you know, it, we tend to think it's never the devil until, you know what I'm saying? It's something like in a movie, you know. Um, but when you even look at the context of Ephesians 6, it's things like children submitting to their parents, husbands loving their wives, wives respecting their husbands. And then Paul says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Um, and, and so C.S. Lewis, he talks about this in the screw tape letters, that there tends to be like two kinds of people with spiritual warfare. There's the materialist, that like nothing's ever the devil. And like right now you're like, oh, this guy is one of those like devil talking preacher guys. Like, devil, watch out. Okay, that's you. And, and really you have, you, can, you can't really even use the term evil because it doesn't have a source. There's some issues with that. And you, everything's reduced to like a natural cause. And then there's the other extreme. So one underestimates the devil. C.S. Lewis says the other extreme is the magician, where everything's the devil, and he's got too high a view of the devil. He overestimates the devil. C.S. Lewis says, here's the truth. The devils, they hail the materialist and the magician with the same delight. That's what C.S. Lewis says. As long as you have an unhealthy view of the devil, he's happy. But a healthy view of, of Scripture will lead us somewhere in the middle where we don't put Satan higher than God, nor do we discount him in everyday life. And when I say Satan, I mean the, the embodiment of the spiritual forces that we face. Um, also, when we understand the storyline of the Bible, a lot of the times what we do is we have in our mind the storyline of history and Scripture with Genesis and Revelation. And what we kind of think is like spiritual warfare shows up in the story. You ever thought that way? Like, here it is in this chapter. Here it is in that situation. Oh, here it was in my life three years ago. And we sort of make the spiritual conflict a, like a subplot of the story. But if you read the story of the Bible, you know what you find? It's the overarching story. Genesis 1 to Revelation is all about a spiritual conflict between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Part of the reason why we're so blind to this is because humanity has joined the rebellion with spiritual darkness. And, and the whole story is about Jesus. The promise from the beginning was that he was going to crush the head of the serpent. That Jesus is going to overcome the wicked one. And, and so that, that's the, listen, this is what we need to see. This is what Jesus is working against in this story. These, this demonic realm. It's interesting um, one of the ways that, sa that Satan and his demons work against God is through human hosts, through people. Um, Satan, first of all, we didn't understand too, like a basic theology, hates people, hates humans. John Thompson wrote a book called Deliverance on this topic, and he said this. He said that when the reason why Satan hates people so much, humans, like this guy here in the story just seeks to destroy them. Like this is the this guy represents like the epitome of Satan destroying a life, destroying their faith, destroying their hope, destroying their lives. 
The reason why Satan is so bent on your destruction, John Thompson says this, is because you're made in the image of God. And so when the enemy sees you, he sees his enemy. He sees God. That's what John Thompson says. He sees his image on you. And one of the greatest ways that he can put a mockery to God is to use humans to do his will, to do his bidding. And that's what we have here in this case. We don't know how this demon-possessed man, in the condition, we, we don't know, like, how the demonic entered his life. We don't know what happened. You know, I don't think there was, like, Ouija boards back then. I'm not exactly sure of what was going on. But I want to say that in Scripture, I want you to think about these three progressive events that can happen to where Satan can take position and even, in some ways, possession of an individual life, influencing their life. It starts usually with a foothold, this is Ephesians chapter 4 where, the, where Paul says, don't give a foothold to the devil. One of the best ways that you can give a foothold to the devil is to live like he doesn't exist and that there's not a spiritual war. Do you know what I'm saying? This is usually where it starts. Like, let me just give Satan a little bit of room here. I'm just going to make a little compromise. I'm just going to kind of like slack off. It usually starts with a foothold. We underestimate the power the destructive power of giving that foothold. So it's, maybe it's a sin struggle, or maybe it's a faulty belief that we continue to feed. You understand? Now, when we don't take defense on those footholds, those footholds become strongholds. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, that in Christ, we have weapons to overcome every stronghold that mounts itself up against the knowledge of God. This is what Satan loves to do. He gets in with the foothold. Think of Adam and Eve. A little foothold. And then it becomes a stronghold, something that is overpowering your life, something that's absolutely destroying who you are and your faith and your life. That stronghold, if left unchecked, James chapter 1 says that sin conceives and brings forth death. And it becomes a chokehold, which is the idea of you're, you're dying. I mean, this, this man in this story sequentially has ended up in the place to where He's in a chokehold. And it's pretty bad, isn't it? Jesus comes to the man and he, he, he calls out the demon. He says, what is your name? That's the question he asks. Now, this is really interesting, right? Because he says, come out of him, unclean spirit. Um, and then he says, what is your name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. Legion was a Roman military term. It described somewhere between like 5,600 to 6,000 soldiers. What's your name? Legion. There, there are many demons that have taken a stronghold and a chokehold in this individual's life and are using him, destroying him from the inside out. Um, what's, what's kind of interesting about this section is you, you don't really know who's talking to who. Is Jesus speaking to the demon and is the demon replying, or is or the demons legion replying, or is the individual? And it's kind of an, an interesting mystery. Um, I kind of think Jesus here is, is doing two things when he asks, what is your name? I love this. The first thing Jesus is doing is he's identifying the spiritual force. I believe he's doing that. He's calling it out. What is your name? But there's nothing here that says that Jesus is only speaking to the demon. He's actually speaking. Notice what it says. He asked who? Him. Now, I, I sort of see this, too, and I couldn't really find any commentaries on this. And so, by the way, anytime a pastor says that and then they're about to say something, check what they're going to say, okay? So don't take this as the word of God. But just, like, basic hermeneutics, this is my speculation. 
I believe Jesus was doing two things when he asked this question. I believe that he is identifying the demon, but I also believe that he is dignifying the man. He asks him, notice what he asks, what he asks this man. He says, what is your name? When's the last time someone asked this guy what his name was? He wasn't even a person anymore. He was a beast. He was a creature. He was a wild animal kept in chains. The beauty of Jesus here. So now we're going to start to see the light break in. You want to see the light break into the darkness here? This is so beautiful. It says this. This is the next thing we get. We get the conquest. I got all con words today. I promise I'm not a con though. Hey, oh, all right. You really said that at church? Yeah. All right. The conquest. We see now what Jesus works towards, what Jesus right now is still working towards, which is a conquest. You have this conflict, this spiritual battle. Within this conflict, you have Jesus showing up here on the story, and, and what he's going to do here is he's going to give light to the conquest that heaven is participating in at that moment then and even today in your and my life. The conquest, which is what Jesus is working towards. What is conquest, Andrew? Let me define it for you because of Google. Conquest is territory that has been gained by the use of subjugation and military force. Territory. Think of that language. Isn't that beautiful? Think of the territory of the Garden of Eden under God's rule, God's domain, God's authority. And think about the language of the New Testament because of the fall, because of the rebellion, because of the spiritual conflict. The territory of the earth belongs to Satan. This is why, remember when Satan brings Jesus up on the mountain in Matthew 4 and offers Jesus the kingdoms of this world? Jesus doesn't go, well, Satan, that's not yours to give me. He doesn't say that. Because that's what's wrong with this world is because of sin, because of our rebellion, this is the territory of Satan. And the result of the territory of Satan is not a lush paradise garden of Eden, it's a desert with remnants and remains of the image of God and the beauty of God and the creation of God and the presence still of the working spirit of God. But it's a territory. So conquest, think about Jesus the king. He comes on the scene to take that territory back, to say, this belongs to my father. This life of this man doesn't belong to you. He was made in my image. And whatever you've made him to be, however deformed he's become to be, however broken the situation is, it's no match for my conquesting power, my territory-taking power. I'm here to sweep over this situation. This is beautiful. We see what Jesus is, by the way, in the end, this is what Jesus is going to do. We know the end of the story. Isn't that great news? We live in history knowing how everything pans out. Isn't that good? What's the great, like, what's the, the Twitterism? It's like a, maybe even a bumper sticker. When, when Satan reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. <laughs> Amen. Quote me and like put my name at the end of that, okay? Um, do like one of those pastor posts. Like. All right. You, you know, like, it's crazy to think about this. This is how the story goes. This is what Jesus is working towards. It's what he's beginning He's beginning to crush the evil one. He's working towards victory. And so the demons, they beg him, Jesus, earnestly that he wouldn't send them out of the country. Now Luke says that the demons are actually say a step further. They say, please don't send us into the abyss. That place of, of judgment. 
the abyss, some people think it's just like this, this holding place, this prison cell, this, this spiritual prison cell, out of which one day Jesus is going to remove every foe there, throw them in the lake of fire, and complete his final judgment. But, but they're like, okay, they, notice this, they recognize his power, so notice what they do. They ask, please, please don't, uh, um, please don't get sent us out of the country. And so it says that once Jesus gave them permission, oh, I guess we're missing a verse here. Yeah, I think we are. My bad. Remember, remember the verse? It was a great verse. We read it earlier. It talks about how they say, well, let us go into these, these swine over here. And I love this. Jesus gives them permission. He's like, okay. Kind of like God with Job. Remember that? Where Satan's like, can I afflict this guy? And you just see the authority of God over, the, over these faulty authorities. It says, then the unclean spirits, they went out of the man, and they entered the swine, and there were about 2,000 of them, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So a lot of, I think a lot of questions here as to, like, why didn't Jesus just throw them in the abyss? That, 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 that's a lot of, um, that's a lot of um, the discussion that's around this verse. And there's really just kind of speculation. Some people say maybe it was because he wanted to reveal their true nature, that, he, that they, they were trying to destroy this man, but the, maybe his human will was keeping that ultimately. He was still holding on, but the second they got into an actual animal, the demons brought in, like immediate destruction. And that could be that God's like, let that happen so everyone can see, so that soulless church can be reading this story one day and be like, that's what the devil does. Now, I don't know exactly. We do know that it happened. Jesus permits these forces, you know, the demonic, they, they function like a parasite, don't they? They need a host. So he, he permits them to go into the, to the swine, and they run down this steep mountain. Um, this is a lot of money. I've never owned a pig before. I've eaten a lot of bacon. I've, eat, I've eaten my fair share of pig feel disgusting saying that. I don't know, but this is 2,000. This is, this is not a cheap expense. Listen closely. To save this one life. Isn't that beautiful? You see how much Jesus values this one man that he's willing to, look at the financial loss that Jesus was willing to give for this one individual. So beautiful. They run, now at the end of the day, here's what's going on. 1 John 3, 8 says that it was for this purpose that the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That's what's going on here. Jesus is overpowering the works of the devil. We're almost done. Check this next one out. The convert is what Jesus works for. We see the conquest. Jesus is taking territory. Then we see what Jesus is working for which is transformed lives. We have the convert. I love how this goes. This is really interesting. So those who fed the swine, they ran away because you and I would do the same thing if there was a stampede of 2,000 pigs. Also, if it was going to cost you your job, you're like, I, I, this is a great way to handle conflict. I'm just going to run away. Let's, go, let's start running this way. <laughs> so they just start taking off, and they go into the city, and they, they go, guys, you you." Go, 2,000 pigs just ran off the cliff. You got to come see it. It's like, weren't you the guy watching them? Yeah. Oh, come on. So they went out to see what happened. So a whole crowd comes. Like, imagine this, right? This is before, you know, Instagram and the whole live stream things. And they're just like, you got to come see this. This is crazy. All right. Now, check this out. They came to Jesus and they saw the one 
who had been demon-possessed and had the legion. I love this. Sitting, there he is. He's no longer prostrate. He's no longer in an emotional undone state. Notice his condition. He's clothed and he's in his right mind. And they were afraid. They feared. Isn't it amazing? Like The idea here is that they're in awe of the power to transform a life. They couldn't believe their eyes because this guy was, they knew this guy. He was unchangeable. He was unconvertible. He was unsavable. He was untreatable. Everyone had tried. He's the hopeless cause. And they're in awe of what Jesus was able to do as he's there sitting and clothed in his right mind. He's a convert. Um, This is really cool. The word convert, now, it's like when you're talking about a Christian, isn't it interesting when we say a Christian, we're like a convert. When we talk about a scientific term, we say convert, yeah? Are you a convert or a convert, okay? So anyway, to convert in a scientific understanding is to cause to change in form, character, or function. That's what happened to this guy. Can I say something? This is what Jesus is still doing today. This is what he's up to. Jesus is in the business of taking people whose lives are in utter destruction, utter disrepair. Maybe you go today, you go, no, that's not me, though, because I have so rebelled against God that I want nothing to do with him. You're a perfect candidate to watch God overpower your rebellious heart and see him convert you and change you. And his love is stronger than our rebellion. That's what's so amazing about this. To change in form, even character. He converts our whole being and even our function. This individual was completely transformed and they were afraid. Now, I I love what it goes on to say here. It says, those who saw it told them how it happened to him who'd been deemed possessed and about the swine. Then they began, this is really interesting, they began to plead with Jesus to get out of the city. Like, can you leave? First of all, you're terrifying us. Secondly, you're not good for business, Jesus. We just lost 2,000 swine. I mean, what an interesting picture. Like, they were unwilling to, they saw the ministry of Jesus, but they were unwilling to actually welcome and receive the ministry of Jesus because of what it would cost them. So the way that they walked away was they pushed him away. They said, get out of here. You're too much of a liability. Jesus, you're too much of a disruptor. And we like things just the way we like them, as they are. Here they are. Everything fits. The money lines up. And here's Jesus just wrecking house. For the good, for the glory of God and the good of those who are there. So they plead with him not to depart, and here's where we close. And this is where it just gets really beautiful. The last thing is, thanks for your grace, by the way. We started eight minutes late, so I'm wrapping up here. I know you're like, what are you talking about? I could sit here for another hour, Andrew. What are you saying? All right. The conduit, the last con, shows what Jesus works This is really interesting. So they asked Jesus to leave. And so Jesus gets in the boat and he leaves. So, so far, Jesus has, he has um, seceded to the orders or the requests of two categories of people, right? The demons who said, can we go into the swine? He's like, permission granted. The townspeople, I don't know what else to call them. He's like, they're like, can you leave? He's like, you got it. I'm getting on my boat. I'm out of here. Disciples are like, abode again? Okay. Um, 
But the man who had been demon-possessed, notice this. He's in his right mind now. His life has been transformed. He's been completely transformed by the power of Jesus, the work of Jesus. He begged Jesus that he might be with him. Don't leave. And isn't it interesting that Jesus did not permit him? Isn't it interesting? This is the, the God. Out of, out of all the people that you think Jesus would listen to and do what they're asking, you would think it would be the, this guy. But he's the one that Jesus says, nope. I'm not answering that request. And here's why. He said to him, instead, I, um, I know you want to come here, go do that. Here's what I want you to do. Here's your mission field. Go home. Here's, what I, here's your assignment. Tell your friends what great things the Lord has done for you. Guess what? You're a, you were a demoniac, but now you're a missionary. Go home. By the way, where, where it's the hardest place to do missions and outreach, where people actually know you, Right? It's so much easier to show up to, the, to do the outreach thing. Like, I want to do outreach, right? I want to show up to the thing and hand out this thing with a smile on my face in the name of Jesus. It's like, well, do you know your name? Let's start here. Do you know your neighbor's names? That's, that's real outreach. This is what Jesus envisions. It's so beautiful. Go home and tell. He sends this. Every time Jesus brings someone in, it's for the purpose of sending them back out. Go tell your friends what God has done for you. And here's evangelism. By the way, this is it. Like, I don't really understand all the ins and outs of soteriology and how the gospel works together with responsibility and blah, blah, blah. You can get into so many conundrums. Has God had compassion on you? Has he done great things for you? When you look at Calvary, do you see your sins paid for? Do you see salvation in Jesus? Are you a new creation because of Jesus? Go and tell people what God has done for you. That's evangelism. This is what God has done for me. And he goes back, it tells us that he departed and he began to proclaim into the Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him. I love this. And all, all marveled. This man who once had the condition of complete brokenness and deformity, he becomes a missionary. He becomes a conduit, a vessel through which God is now going to work through. This is what the scriptures say about you and me. It's my closing verse, Ephesians 2.10. Paul says this about you and I. This is so sweet. That we are his workmanship. We all have our own stories of the mess of our lives and the grace of Jesus. We are his poetry. We are his works of art, his masterpieces that display his work to the world. And as his workmanship, we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is why we want to know the works of Jesus, because we want to be available to them in our world. He's created us for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Isn't that fun? That will make your day so much better if you go, today, God's prepared some good things for me to do. He's worked in my life. He's transformed my life. Now, I just want to be a conduit and a vessel for him. God, open my eyes to the spiritual battle around me and open my eyes to the spiritual opportunities you're putting before me to be used by him. This is the work of Jesus. This is what he does. He takes people, as it's been said, from the guttermost, and he brings them to the uttermost. He transforms lives, and he does that for you and me as well.